We're continuing our one-word study that we've been doing throughout this year, this evening, and we're looking at the word truth tonight. I love the University of Texas. Now, that's obviously no secret, although it must have been a secret to someone who groaned back there. But I love it so much. It was where I always wanted to go to school, even when I was a boy. I got accepted right out of high school, but I decided I just didn't feel like I was quite ready to go off that far away to college yet. And so I went to UT Tyler for a year. I didn't like it there. I didn't want to keep going. I wanted to go to UT in Austin so badly that I had a full scholarship at Tyler and I gave it up. I quit school for two years, worked in a restaurant and saved up money because my daddy told me, son, you can go wherever you want and I'll support you, but I can't give you any money for school. So I saved up my money to go and pay on my own dime because that's where I wanted to go. Now, that sort of love might manifest itself in ugly ways sometimes. Uh, we went to the UT and Rice game last night with the Strickhausens, and Abby warned them in, in advance that every now and then, watching a football game, they might not recognize me if the uh, officials made a bad call. They'd probably, you know, would just be embarrassed there, not know exactly who I am. Uh, in fact, we have Miss Linda Wagstaff, right, visiting with us here. She's just recently moved to Dayton and is uh, trying things out here. She's from Bay City. She knows my brother. And she mentioned today that before they'd asked, do I look like my brother or not? And she said, well, no, he looks like a football coach and Bryant looks like a preacher. But, and that makes sense. But if you saw me in those moments, you might think that I looked more like my brother. <laughs> At any rate, I love the University of Texas. And on the campus of the University of Texas, the most famous building is the main building or the tower. Now this will surprise some of our Aggies here in the audience, but there are actually some college campuses that don't look like they were designed by an architect who was a refugee from Stalinist Russia. Uh, the buildings are beautiful and they try to make them that way. Uh, this is one that we've all seen. It's in advertising for the university. In fact, it's not the case anymore, but Back when I was a kid in the early 90s and I visited Austin for the first time, you could still see it sort of towering above the skyline before there were big sky skyscrapers like there are there now. On that building, on the south facade, the main entrance, is an inscription. And this is also probably the most widely read inscription on campus. It's a direct quotation from John chapter 8, verse number 32 in the King James Version. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You can read it there in that slide. The irony of that text in that place is not lost on me. For one thing, those are words of Jesus. And in the context of John's gospel, Jesus is making a very specific truth claim. After all, he says there, he is the way, the truth, the life. John chapter 14, verse number 6. John says in the prologue to his gospel that in him the glory of the one true God was manifest. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John chapter 1 and verse 14. The university officials who placed that on the building back in 1936 when they built it, they thought that was a nice quote, but they stripped it from its context and ultimately stripped it of its significance. This is the way that uh, Dr. William Battle put it. Uh, He was the chair of the committee that chose that inscription. He said, truth and freedom are so essentially the foundation of education, character, and progress that the injunction to seek truth as a means to freedom is as splendid a call to youth as we can make. Its form is perfect. Its source is not a drawback. That's rich. Its source is not a drawback. And it has the weight of nearly 2,000 years' acceptation. Well, that makes a pleasing motto, I suppose, but you see, even in the way he interprets it, that's not the sense in which Jesus intended that. Nor has that sense ever been so fully accepted as Dr. Battle implies there. But at the least, at the least, even if that wasn't quite right, at least those faculty members who chose that quotation believed in the idea of objective truth, that truth is something that we should be pursuing even if they didn't understand the pursuit of that in the same sense that Jesus intended. And that introduces the second layer of irony here in this text being inscribed on the main building. You would be hard-pressed to find a contemporary student or, in fact, a professor in many of the departments on the university campus, and not just there, at most university campuses, who would contend that truth, objective truth, is something that we can or that we even should be striving after. Postmodernism has encouraged us to question whether the very concept of such a thing as objective truth even exists. Truth isn't objective, it's subjective, it's relative. What's true for you might not be true for me. And what's true for me might not be true for you. We all have to determine what's true for ourselves. You don't have to be a philosopher or even think really seriously about these sorts of things to see how over the last half century or so, that mentality, that worldview, has passed from being just the province of avant-garde intellectuals to now it's infiltrated the worldview of the average person on the street. That's the way most people in society think about truth. It's reflected in our view of morality. It's reflected in our politics. It's reflected even in, in some of the sciences it started to infiltrate that. In other words, Jesus says, you shall know the truth. Our culture responds much like Pilate did in the text that Tristan read for us a few moments ago. What is truth? We think we're so enlightened that we're so sophisticated in our modern age, but you see, there's nothing new under the sun. Those sorts of questions that people ask today, Pilate and other like-minded fellows in the Roman world were asking those very same questions. They were skeptical that such a thing as truth even existed. So in a world that believes 
There is no truth, or at best, maybe there is a truth, but it's unknowable. We can't possibly identify what the truth is. What does Scripture have to say to us? When we're talking about truth on one level, just the plain English meaning of the word, we mean that which corresponds to reality. Something is true when our statement about it or our belief corresponds to the facts of a particular case. Now, that's the way that Western philosophy classically viewed truth going all the way back to Aristotle. It's also the view that we see reflected in Scripture. Truth or reality isn't determined by what I think about it. It doesn't really make any difference what I believe about something to be true or not. There's a difference between what I think about things and the things themselves. In other words, truth is objective. There is an objective reality that exists regardless of our opinions. Now, we use truth like that in English in that broad, general sense, and we could talk about that more. We could talk about how that popular outlook of relativism is self-defeating. After all, if truth is relative... Is that absolutely true? If it's not, if it's relative, well then who is it true for and who is it not true for? And of course, if it is absolutely true that truth is relative, why is that the only absolute truth? Why can we make an exception of that? You see, it it doesn't really hold together if you start to think about it. And of course, no one actually lives that out in practice. If you're... if Philip leaves here tonight, and Philip, for whatever reason, he doesn't get in his car. He starts to walk across the highway, and I see a big 18-wheeler coming, and I say, Philip, watch out. There's a truck, and he turns around to me, and he says, well, that's your opinion. I don't know that that's the truth or not, and he steps out into the highway. Those are going to be his last words, whether he believes it or not. And regardless of his opinion on the existence of the truck, of its reality, or the truth of my statement, we're going to be scraping Philip up off the road after that. We all realize that there is such a thing as objective truth. In fact, the only place we want to apply this is when it comes to moral truth. We're big fans of relative morality. We recognize that that's not really the way that the world works. That's convenient. (laughs) This touches on biblical principles, obviously, and we can have a good discussion on this sort of thing, but I do want to point out that when we're talking about a word study, the word truth, this goes beyond the way that truth, strictly speaking, is used in Scripture. We're not talking about logical truth, philosophical truth, uh, moral truth, anything else we want to talk about here. We're talking about religious truth. So let's talk about these words briefly here. The Old Testament word for truth, the Hebrew word, is emet. The primary meaning with this word is that something is right. It is certain. It is trustworthy. It's faithful. This word's used uh, some 117 times in the Old Testament, and more often than not, it's applied to God. God is the one who is truthful. His nature is truth. 
Uh, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16 gives us a good example. He who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. God is truth. And because of that, confidence, assurance, security, those things are found in him. And that association is so close that sometimes when this word's applied to God, we see it translated not as truth, but as faithfulness, because we know God's truthful, therefore he's faithful. We can trust him. We can take him at his word. The New Testament word, the Greek word translated as truth, is aletheia. Now that was a word that was used in Greek philosophy, but in the New Testament, it doesn't really draw from the world of the philosophers so much. It builds on that Old Testament context. It's used in that same sense. It refers to uh, validity, reliability, veracity, the fact that uh, it corresponds to reality. And again, its usage in the New Testament primarily points to God. God's a source of truth. God's the standard for truth. So what we see when we talk about truth in the way that it's used in the Bible, again and again, it comes back to the nature of God. That's its primary, primary reference point. God is truthful. God's the creator. In fact, he's the sustainer of life. He not only brought this world into existence, but he uh, continues to uphold it by the word of his power. So because of that, logically, he must be the source of truth. If truth, as we said, is something that corresponds to reality and reality is based in God, God's the source of reality, well, then he must be the source of truth too because reality itself exists, revolves around him. That makes sense too when we think about Scripture. Now, this unit, these last three words, these are all about God's word. And I, I, wish, I wish that the lesson on truth had followed up the lesson on inspiration rather than having covenant in between there because these two concepts are closely related. But you think about God's word. Jesus says, John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We all know that. Your word is truth. If God's word is truth, and if scripture, remember, scripture's inspired by God, what does that literally mean? It's breathed out by God. God is the source of scripture. That inspiration means that he's literally the one who's authoring it, breathing it out. If God's word is truth, if he's breathing out scripture, then the source of that word must be truthful, right? God himself has to be truthful. And as we mentioned already, Jesus calls himself the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, verse 6. He is the word, that association between word and truth. Jesus is the word who was made flesh, John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and you know, down through the rest of that chapter. In Jesus, the Father is revealed. He and the Father are one, as he says in John chapter 14, or we mentioned already, John 1, 14, that he revealed the glory of the Father full of grace and truth. In other words, you put all this together when we talk about truth. Even when we talk about how Scripture is truth, we are 
fundamentally making a claim about God himself. God's nature is truth. God's truthful. I like the way Wayne Grudem sums this up in uh, his book on systematic theology. This is a great definition. He's talking about the characteristics of God. And one of those characteristics he lists is truthfulness. He says God's truthfulness means he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. That's a good one-sentence summary of what we're talking about here. Let's think about that and unpack that here. For one thing, the God of the Bible is the one God, the only God, the true God, the real God, the one that corresponds to reality rather than all these false gods that are out there. All other so-called gods are idols. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. Or we can think about what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. God is the one, the only true God. No one else and nothing else can be put in that place that rightfully belongs only to him. God, in his own being, in his own character, conforms to our idea of what God should be. That is, that's how we know God is God in reality, because when you think about God, he possesses all of those attributes that we expect God to possess. He's all-powerful. He has all knowledge. He is love, so on and so forth with these attributes we could name. And, of course, that has the risk of being circular. You know, how do we know that there's God? Well, we're thinking about God, and he has those attributes, etc. But the point is, how do we have that concept of God in our mind? The Creator put it there. He imprinted that upon us, this idea of what God should be, and indeed he matches up with that because he's the source of reality. He is truth. This also affirms that God is the standard of truth. His knowledge is true. He's the standard of truth. Job tells us that he is perfect in knowledge. Job chapter 37, verse 16. So God, God doesn't make mistakes. He's never mistaken in his perception, his understanding of the world. You know, I said this morning when we were doing that uh, sort of uh, imaginary version of the majority report of those spies that you know God must have made a mistake. He was in error. He didn't really understand there were giants here. God knew that. God doesn't make any mistakes, misperceptions, any errors in judgment. In fact, the standard of true knowledge is conformity to his knowledge. We know that we have knowledge when what we know matches up with him and what he knows. That also means that God's words are true. And when I say God's words are true, God keeps his promises. When God says something, you can take that to the bank. He always lives up to what he said. That's how we know he can be trusted. And after all, that's what faith really is fundamentally, isn't it? It's trust. It's believing that God will do what he said he's going to do. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 4. God's faithful. He's reliable. That's because his words are true. 
But not only are God's words true, but God's word is true. And when I say his word, distinguished from his words, I'm talking here about Scripture. What he says about himself, what he says about reality, what he says about people. When God speaks, what he says corresponds to the way things really are. And we said that's the definition of truth. Now that has implications for how we view the Bible. We can test the Bible. We've talked about this before. Uh, it's been some time, but in other lessons, uh, and I won't go into detail for that reason and belabor this point, but the Bible's not a science textbook, so we can't go here asking questions of it that it's not intended to answer. But where it speaks, its knowledge is remarkable. It's always accurate. Or if you want to go more into my wheelhouse, the Bible isn't a history textbook, and so sometimes we might want to know more about things and different times and people. It doesn't always give us the answers we want. But where it does speak, we can trust it. It's reliable, and it's proved that over and over again. And there's a number of examples in the historical realm. You know, the Bible talks about a people called the Hittites repeatedly. And for a long time, up into the 19th century, when archaeologists first started doing work, we didn't find any evidence of these Hittites. Well, they must have just made it up. And then, lo and behold, we finally found evidence of them. And, of course, now that evidence is multiplied, and it turns out this is an extremely significant ancient civilization. You could look at uh, some of the archaeological evidence we found, the inscriptions that confirm some of the stories in the Old Testament. My favorite one like this is from the annals of the Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. And if you read the story uh, where he goes up against Hezekiah, and this is where God delivers Hezekiah, he takes out the Assyrians suddenly in the middle of the night. Sennacherib lists all these cities that he conquered throughout Judah, and then he finally gets to Jerusalem and Hezekiah, and he says, I had Hezekiah, the king of Judah, pent up like a bird in a cage. And then he just goes on from there. He doesn't say anything about capturing Jerusalem or capturing or killing Hezekiah. And, of course, that confirms exactly what we see in Scripture. Sennacherib's not going to include in there how he got uh, humiliated because that's not the way ancient kings work. But his silence uh, speaks volumes. Or you could look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts was thought in the 19th century to be extremely historically unreliable until some scholars, William Ramsey in particular, in the late 19th century, this was a guy who was skeptical. He set out to prove that Acts was not trustworthy, and when he started actually doing the investigation, lo and behold, it was actually extremely accurate in the minute details that really didn't have anything to do with the main thrust of Luke's story, but with the geographic regions he talked about, with the particular rulers that he named, uh, with the terminology he used for local officials over and over again. Acts is reliable in its details to the point that while some of these liberal New Testament scholars are skeptical of it, uh, Roman historians say, no, we've long since accepted the reliability of Acts. Now, the point of this, it's not that the Bible needs us to prove it because it doesn't. We can trust it because of the truthful nature of God, but when we test it, we find that it's reliable because God's reliable. So when we put all this together tonight in terms of what we can take home, practical applications here of a study of the word truth, for one thing, truth is objective. Truth is not something that differs from one of us to the other. It's not something that depends upon our 
own relative experience. Truth is rooted in God and in his nature. Now, I know everybody here tonight accepts that. They take that as a given. But I I worry sometimes that this idea of a subjective truth sort of infects our thinking. It sort of sneaks in there, permeates our brains without us really realizing it. None of us would claim that truth is subjective, but, but sometimes our culture has a way of working on us, and there are certain areas where we might accept these sorts of things as true. But that's not the case. Truth is objective because it's rooted in God and in his nature. That's what it all flows back to. Secondly, that objective truth is knowable. So not only does it exist, we can know what it is. It's revealed to us in Scripture. This is God's book. He spoke. He breathed this out. And because God is the source of truth, we can find the truth here. He's disclosed himself and his nature in it. Now, that doesn't mean that we always know the truth. When I say that truth is knowable, that doesn't necessarily mean that we know it because it always depends on proper interpretation. When we're talking about studying God's word, we have to be sure that we're studying it right. In fact, If you did your reading in the one-word book this week, the very last little devotional cautioned us about this. That is, Scripture doesn't contradict itself. If we see it doing that, then that means we're messing up in our interpretation somewhere along the way. So we always have to admit that there are limits to our knowledge. We always have to admit, hey, there's a possibility I could be wrong in the way I'm understanding things here. We have to be open to revision, but... If there's a problem here, it's not with the truth, it's with us. And we have to be studying his word and open to going wherever it leads us rather than being stuck in whatever we think the truth is because this is the source of it, not not here. Just because we don't know it doesn't mean that there's not an answer. There's an answer. But finally, on a more personal level, and I think this applies to all of us in our contemporary society, not just contemporary society. I mean, this, this goes all the way back uh, to the garden. If we want to be God's people, if we want to emulate our Father, then we need to be truthful. If truth is inherent in God's nature, then if we're going to be like him, we need to be people of the truth. So that means we need to be careful about what we say. We need to be careful about what we do and make sure that our actions match up with the things that we say. If we're going to reflect him, we have to be people of truth. And this is particularly important when we live in a society that's, that's pretty careless with the truth, doesn't seem to regard the truth very highly. And why would they when we think that truth is relative? I mean, if that's the case, then what does it matter if you lie? Who cares? That may be my truth, even if it's not yours. That's why we're warned repeatedly in Scripture not to lie, but to speak the truth. How many times do we find that? We find that going back to the Ten Commandments. We find it repeated again and again in the New Testament. And that's not arbitrary. God doesn't make these rules, just pull them out of thin air. It's because they reflect his nature. God is truth. And so we should love the truth. And we should hate falsehood. These things aren't 
as we said, arbitrary. They reflect our God. And if we want to reflect him, we need to be people who value the truth, who are truthful in our own dealings with others, who are truthful in the things that we say, who love the truth and who try to study it and understand it to the best of our ability. Now, maybe you're here this evening and you're not walking in truth. If that's the case, then you need to make some changes in your life tonight. If we can help you in any way this evening, we invite you to come now while we stand and while we sing.